Amen. Let's bow and pray together. Father, we come before you today as we've just sung because you are great and greatly to be praised and because your mercy has been extended to us. We are those who are weary and wounded, those who are sick and sore. We come with our sins, we come with our need, and we come today because we believe in what you have provided. We believe in your son, we believe in his death, we believe in the cross. And we look there today confident that you will receive us, that you will pour out your mercy and forgiveness and cleansing, not because of something in us, not because we are worthy or deserving, but because this is who you are, this is what you delight to do. And Father, it's with that same heart of neediness, that same expectation of grace that we now come to your word. We ask that you would speak to us, form us and fashion us into the image of your son. Reveal yourself to us. Meet with us today, we pray in Christ's name, amen. Please open your Bibles to the book of Exodus, chapter 20. We are now through the, um, the Ten Commandments, but there's much more of Exodus to go, and I'm excited to plow forward. Um, our text today is Exodus chapter 20, verses 22 through 26, and there's a little bit of material after the Ten Commandments, which we covered in a previous sermon So I'm going to read that today, but we won't be basing much of our message off of that. But just for context's sake, I'm going to start reading this morning in verse 18, at the conclusion of God speaking these 10 words, these 10 commands to his people. Exodus chapter 20, beginning in verse 18, says, Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off. And they said to Moses, You speak to us, and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us, lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off, while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. And the Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the people of Israel, You have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourselves gods of gold. An altar of earth you shall make for me, and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. If you make for me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stones, for if you wield your tool on it, you profane it. And you shall not go up by steps to my altar, that your nakedness be not exposed on it. Well, as Carrie mentioned earlier, and as you all know, today is the 4th of July. It's a day we celebrate our nation's independence and the birth of a nation in 1776, an important document was signed. It was the Declaration of Independence. It's a great thing. But that's not the only document that is important to our nation. A few years later, in 1789, we adopted another very important document, the United States Constitution. That's a law that's intended to rule this land and to safeguard the liberty and justice for all that we said was so important to the founding of this nation. And I think we would all agree that having a constitution 
is good. But interpreting and applying that constitution, that is where the rubber hits the road. And as many as you know, there's no shortage of of argument and debate and disagreement and conflict regarding how our nation's constitution should be interpreted, how our constitution should be applied. And sometimes people will wonder out loud, I wonder what they would say if we could go back and ask those original authors of the Constitution what exactly they meant, what exactly they intended, how they think this Constitution should be applied. It's a good question. You say, what does that have to do with Exodus? Well, for Israel, the Ten Commandments, which we've been covering over recent months, really functioned, in a sense, as their Constitution, It was the the foundational law for this newly formed nation that God had redeemed out of slavery in Egypt. And these laws were to govern all of life. But what should it look like for Israel to obey the Ten Commandments? How were they supposed to be applied to life in that day and age? Well, in God's wisdom and in God's grace, he did not leave them in the dark. He gave them these ten words, but then he also provided for them clear direction in something that's called the Book of the Covenant. And that's the section over the next several chapters that we'll be looking at. The Book of the Covenant is a collection of rules and statutes showing them exactly how God wanted them to obey and to enforce his law. In these few chapters, God gives them examples of exactly what it should look like for them. At this specific point in redemptive history, what it should look like to obey his law. Just to recap where we're at in the narrative, remember that these people are deeply fearful after hearing the voice of God. And so they've asked Moses in verse 19 to go be their mediator, to speak to God for them on their behalf and to relay what God is saying to them. They say, we can't handle this any longer to sit under the very voice of God. So in verse 21, Moses draws near to the thick darkness and God speaks to him. And what follows is this extended section of rules. Verse 1 of chapter 21 says, these are the rules that you shall set before them. And in verse 24, it says, Moses wrote all these things down. He wrote down what is called there the book of the covenant. So roughly chapters 21 through 23 make up this section, these statutory laws. Now, those of you who perhaps have read Exodus, or maybe if you're sitting here in a sermon like this today, You might be tempted to read through a portion of scripture like this and say, how to build altars properly? And as you keep going, don't boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Or laws about oxen goring people. I mean, what does that have to do with us? This doesn't seem very relevant for 21st century Christians. But I hope that you will believe with me this morning that all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for us. We need this. It's actually very needed. Although we today, as worshipers of Christ, are no longer under this Mosaic covenant, we're not obligated to obey and enforce these laws in exactly the same way. They do hold great value for us. As we'll see over the next several weeks, these rules and statutes underscore the importance of worship. These laws uphold the value and dignity of human life. These laws illustrate principles of justice, which is so needed, ever so important in our day. 
These laws highlight the importance of integrity. These laws show us how a redeemed people must be unique and different from the world. So listen, the lessons that are laid out in this law, they aren't just for Israel. It's for us as well. As the saying goes, they may not be written to us, but they are preserved for us. So over the next several weeks, as we work through this book of the covenant, I hope you will be eager to receive what God has to say to us through his inspired word. What we find in the first section here in 22 through 26 is that the book of the covenant begins with worship. The beginning emphasis is worship. Here we find instructions about idols and altars. But what's interesting is if we look at the end of this section in chapter 23, we find that the book of the covenant also ends with instruction regarding worship. Three different festivals, these worship feasts, round out this book of the covenant. So worship is the starting point, and worship is also the end goal. Worship bookends or frames the entire book of the covenant. This emphasis on worship in the law and the specific instructions that are found here, they show us this timeless principle that a redeemed people worship by the book. We will worship by the book. Although worship looks different today because of where we stand on the other side of Christ's death and resurrection, there are still some important truths that we can learn about worship here. If we, as God's redeemed people today, are going to worship by the book, there's three things about worship we can learn here. And the first is this. Number one, worship is a response to revelation. It's a response to God's revelation, God's self-revelation, the way that God shows us who he is and tells us what he is like and communicates to us his will. That is revelation. Worship is a response to that revelation. Look with me in verse 22. God tells Moses to remind the people what they experienced at Mount Sinai. Thus you shall say to the people of Israel, you have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. As the people put into practice various acts of worship, they needed to remember something. They needed to remember what they themselves had seen. The one that they worshipped was not some vague idea of a God. The one they worshipped, this is not just some cultural myth that had been passed down. The one they worshipped was a personal God. A God who had literally showed up on the mountain and spoken to them his voice into their ears. God had revealed himself to his people. And worship was to be their response to him. In chapter 19, we saw that there was thick darkness that wrapped the mountain. There was flashing fire. There was earthquake. There was the loud sound of thunder as they heard the very voice of God speaking. This revelation was so intense. It was so real, so physical even, that they didn't want any more. They asked God to talk to Moses instead of directly talking to them. Their worship was a response to a God who had revealed himself to them. But this wasn't the only way God had revealed himself to them. God had also revealed himself to these people in his merciful and powerful acts of redemption. Remember, he's just brought them out of Egypt. Great signs and wonders. 
great mercy and faithfulness to them. Exodus chapter 6, verse 7, if you remember, God says, I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Listen, even the act of the Exodus, God's rescue of his people, it wasn't just so that they could stop having to go to work so much and have such a difficult life in slavery. God redeemed them so that they would know who he is. This was an act of God's self-disclosure. He's showing them and showing Egypt and showing their neighbors who he is and what he is like. In rescuing them from Egypt, God had shown them his power and his faithfulness and his grace and his judgment. But that wasn't all. In the wilderness, God had continued to reveal himself to them. God had shown them his patience, his goodness, his provision. Remember, these people were starving and they were thirsty and they were complaining, but God had provided water from the rock. God had provided bread from heaven. God had patiently taught them to trust in his power and his goodness. This is revelation as well. And then here at Mount Sinai, God brings them into this covenant. He shows them, he reveals to them his gracious purposes that he intended to be their God and he desired for them to be his people, that he planned to make them a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. God is revealing all of this to them. And then in the law, the Ten Commandments, God continues this disclosure of himself. He showed them his character. He showed them his righteousness. He revealed to them his moral will. He showed them his design for individuals and for families and for society. All of this is revelation. All of this they knew and understood because God had made it known. If God didn't act, they wouldn't have known any of these things. So these people, think about it, where they stand today with their sandals in the desert there at Mount Sinai, they are drinking out of a fire hose as God has been revealing himself to them. And they're learning more and more about who this God was, what he was like, what it was that he wanted. And so in response to all of this revelation, their first and most important order of business is worship. It's worship. Listen, we too worship God as a response, a response to what he has revealed about himself to us. Just like the Israelites, we worship Christ today because of what we have seen, because of what we have heard, because of what we too have experienced. Consider, they were at Sinai because of what God had done for them. Why are we here today? Why are we here It's because of what God has done for us through his son, Jesus Christ. We'll be celebrating that today in the Lord's Supper. The people of Israel had received God's word. They had heard it with their own ears, the very voice of God. We too have received God's word. He has shown us his will and his character, recounted for us his nature, his attributes. We worship today in light of the word. That's why we always read scripture first before we sing. It's a response to what God has revealed to us. These people were responding to a God who had revealed himself to them as a covenantal God, a God who desired relationship with his people. And this relational covenantal bond is to mark our worship as well. 
what we do when the church gathers is not just an exercise in tradition. That's not what this is. What we do when the church gathers is not just some emotional group activity. You can get that at any concert or sporting event. What we're doing here is a personal response to a personal God who has drawn us into a familial relationship with himself. He calls us his children. He relates to us as father. He says, I am your God and you are my people and we are joined together through faith in Christ. Since worship is a response to revelation, both for Israel and for us today, let me ask you this question. Why do you think it is that so often our worship, whether it be corporate worship, whether it be private worship at home, why is it that our, that our worship can become so anemic? Why is it that our worship, the overflow of gratitude and praise and thanks to our Savior, why is it that our worship can be so weak, so tired, so hollow? Could it be that we have taken our eyes off of the one that we're supposed to be responding to? Could it be that we too easily forget how God has revealed himself to us? Could it be that we are neglecting to continue looking, to continue listening because our hearts are fixed on something else? Maybe it's Netflix or the news. Maybe it's work or house projects. Maybe it's our human relationships and the problems we deal with as people in this world. But our eyes are not on Christ. So when we sit down to read his word, when we try to pray, when we come together and open our mouths to sing, sometimes it feels like a chore. Why is that? It's because we're doing it as a chore. And we're not responding to God's revelation of himself in history, in his word, in our own experience. Listen, worship is a response to God's revelation of himself. That's what it is. That's what it is. And we see that right here. Say to the people of Israel, you have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. And their worship was to be formed by God's revelation. Worship is a response to revelation. But a second observation I want to share with you this morning is that secondly, worship is to be regulated by the law. Worship is to be regulated by the law. God desires to be worshipped. But listen, as we saw in the Ten Commandments, God desires not just to be worshipped, he desires to be worshipped rightly. He desires to be worshipped rightly. Hebrews 12 urges us to offer to God acceptable worship. That word is startling. To offer to God acceptable worship means that there is such a thing as unacceptable worship. And we better know what that is. That's a sobering thought. If you've never thought about that before, then you should. You should. And here, God gives Moses instructions as to how Israel is to worship him at this exact moment in their history. And the basic lead of this is don't make idols. Don't make idols. He said, you've heard, verse 22, or you've seen rather for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. 
And then he recaps the first and second commandment. You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourselves gods of gold. Remember the first and second commandment in chapter 20. Verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. Verse 2, you shall not make for yourself a carved image. This is a recap, and it's sort of a, a brief summary that points to the whole of the Ten Commandments. So Moses, speaking on behalf of God, is supposed to remind the people what God had said about how they worshipped. He's emphasizing it to say, don't you forget it. I know we already said this once, but I'm going to repeat it again. And apparently this extra emphasis was necessary because even with all of this repetition, it wouldn't be long till these very people would make a golden calf and use it, saying, this is the gods who brought us out of Egypt. They would soon fall into idolatry. But this phrase here, I think, you know, what Moses is supposed to say to the people, it's more than just a reminder of what God said. It's also a reminder of who God is. You see, God's law is reasonable. This, this isn't just some arbitrary thing. You know what? I'm not in the mood for idols. Why don't you do it this other way? No, God's commandments correspond with reality, with the way that things really are. And they're supposed to remember, according to verse 22, what they saw. And that's interesting. They're not supposed to remember what they heard, the voice speaking from heaven. They're supposed to remember what they saw. And what did they see? What did they see? Well, they saw, according to verse 22, that God spoke. But he did not appear. He did not manifest any form. Yes, there was all of these disturbances in the natural realm, the smoke and the earthquake and the lightning and, and all of that. But they saw no form. And so because of that, they were not to make any images to represent God. Their worship was supposed to correspond with reality. And God cannot be represented by an image. You see, God had plans to make them into a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And he did not want them to try to make him into some portable idol. That is not his will. But I think there's another reason why this commandment not to make idols needs to be repeated. Because God knew also how powerful the temptation would be for them to become like the nations around them. And the point is that the worship of God must not be mixed or contaminated by ungodly elements. No matter how normal, no matter how appealing, no matter how common it may seem, they were not to worship God the way that their pagan neighbors worshiped their gods. They're supposed to be unique. Their worship is to correspond with reality. They're supposed to remember what they saw. And they did not see God. And so they were not to make images of him. So if we could summarize the instruction, it's don't make idols. Instead, make altars. Make altars. It says in verse 24, an altar of earth you shall make for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. And he continues in verse 25, giving instructions for another kind of altar. If you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it out of hewn stones, for if you wield your tool on it, you profane it. So don't make idols, God says. Make altars. Instead of their worship centering on symbols, it was supposed to center around sacrifice. Sacrifice. And here, too, there are instructions. They're supposed to make, make their altars out of dirt, according to verse 24. You might say, why? 
I mean, again, this is one of those things as 21st century readers going, okay, altar, dirt, stone, what's the big difference? Well, I think there's some practical reasons for this. Keep in mind, these people do not yet have instructions for the tabernacle. That's going to come soon. God will later give them instructions on how to build a portable altar, something they can take with them from place to place. It would be hollow and overlaid with bronze. But for now, they're supposed to make these temporary altars. They're, they're in nomadic group. God is leading them through the wilderness. They go from one place to another. And wherever they camp, they can make these altars out of dirt. And that would be a temporary altar, and that would suffice. But I think this is more than just practical. Because even in the simple instructions here, we find some important insights. These altars were supposed to be very, very simple. Very, very simple. I mean, think about it. If you saw an altar made out of dirt, you know, maybe it's sod stacked up, or, or it's just a, a pile sort of packed together, would you be tempted to worship that idol? worship that altar as an idol. No, it's not very impressive. And God knew that the people would be tempted to worship the altar itself, to, to think, have this superstitious value assigned to the altar rather than worshiping God. So making your idols out of dirt kind of keeps you from that temptation. It's not supposed to be an object of worship. The altar is an instrument of worship. And if they did need to build one out of stone, maybe, maybe there was no dirt, it's really rocky, they could pile up some rocks together, but they're supposed to use plain, uncut stones, verse 25. Once again, an altar like this would not be impressive. It would be not a strong temptation to worship an altar like that. The simplicity served to keep the focus on God and avoid the ever-present threat of idolatry. But these, idol, these, these altars are not just supposed to be simple. They're also supposed to be holy. God says, I don't want you to carve it. I don't want you to chisel rocks. If you do make one out of rock, just pile them up and leave them as they are. To use man-made tools on these stones would profane them. It would make it common. That's how you build other stuff. That's not how you build an altar for God. Listen, this altar is supposed to be God's construction more than theirs. When you make an altar out of dirt or when you pile up some rocks together, those are God's ingredients. That's God's altar. It's not something that we created and manufactured. It's not something that's impressive in its human artistry. These are the raw materials that God the creator has provided to his people. The altar was supposed to bear God's fingerprints more than theirs. It was to be holy, set apart, different, holy to the Lord. Not only was their worship to be simple and holy, but their worship is also to be pure. In verse 26, it says, You shall not go up by steps to my altar, that your nakedness be not exposed on it. You see, here's the thing. If they built these really big, tall altars, like many of their neighbors did, and built these steps going up to them, not only would the altar itself become a focus, but those altars were used in pagan days for a lot more than just sacrifice. There was all sorts of sexual immorality that was associated with idol worship. And God wanted the worship that was devoted to him to not even bear a hint of that sort of immorality. The concern was that on a windy day, climbing up the steps, the people down below might see more than what they needed to of the priests. You see, in those days, you wear a tunic, you can't just go down to Walmart and buy a package of Hanes or Fruit of the Loom or whatever it is. So this is practical instruction. We 
We don't have to think about things like this today. It's interesting, later on, God would actually give instructions to make linen undergarments for the priests, just to sort of double-check and make sure that there's no sort of nakedness or exposure associated with the worship of a holy God, because nakedness and exposure and immorality went hand-in-glove with pagan worship. And God wanted his worship to be pure. He wants it to be pure. So the point in all of this, listen, is that it matters how we worship. It matters that we worship God in the way he desires. And the instructions we find regarding worship in Scripture, they all have meaning. They all have purpose. The London Baptist Confession, written in 1689, says this about worship. The acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself. And so limited by his own revealed will that he may not be worshipped according to the imagination and devices of men, nor the suggestions of Satan under any visible representations or any other way not prescribed in the Holy Scriptures. This is something that historians and theologians have always referred to as the regulative principle, which simply put means that the way we approach God in worship, must be done according to the clear teachings of the Bible. And this is a principle that's found all throughout scriptures. We see it here in the Ten Commandments and in the Book of the Covenant in Exodus. We will see this regulative principle later on in the instructions for the tabernacle. We see the importance of the regulative principle in worship in Leviticus when Nadab and Abihu, two priests, take in this unauthorized fire, this strange fire to the tabernacle. They worship God in their own way, not according to the pattern that he had given, and they're judged for it. Their lives are taken from them instantly. We see this principle in 1 Samuel 15. Saul has a military victory and personally sacrifices sheep and oxen to the Lord, and it's not received because he's not a priest, and he wasn't following the pattern God had laid out. The famous words of Samuel to him are, to obey is better than sacrifice. We see this in the New Testament as Jesus condemns the Pharisees who worshipped in vain. They worshipped according to the traditions of men rather than according to the commandments of God in Matthew chapter 15. So we see this principle that worship is to be regulated by God's law all throughout Scripture. So as believers today, although we are not building any altars, still the point stands that our worship needs to be formed and regulated by Scripture. We worship in spirit and in truth. Why? Because Jesus told us to in the book of John. We sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Why? Because that's the instruction we find in Colossians chapter 3. We offer worship with reverence and awe. Why? Because that's what the author of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews chapter 12. We do things decently and in order. Why? Because that's what we find in 1 Corinthians 14 regarding corporate worship. We pray and we preach and we baptize and we share in communion. Why? Because this is what Christ has instructed us to do. There's many other things we could do that we don't do. There's many things that other churches will do on a Sunday when the church gathers that we won't do. Why? It's because of the instructions regarding worship that we find in Scripture. You know, too often the primary question people ask is what sort of worship is pleasing to us? What sort of worship do we enjoy? 
What sort of worship stirs us or makes us feel comfortable or stirs up nostalgic feelings? But the proper question we should always be asking is this, what sort of worship pleases God? What sort of worship pleases him? While there is, to be sure, flexibility and freedom found within the bounds of what Scripture says, don't forget there are bounds to what Scripture says. There are certain principles that are non-negotiable. And while that may look different as it's fleshed out and applied in different places, in different cultures, in different times, there are certain things in Scripture written by the finger of God that must govern our Worship. So a redeemed people worship by the book. Our worship is to be regulated by God's law. So our worship is a response to his revelation. It's regulated by God's law. And then third, our worship is finally rooted in grace. It's rooted in God's grace. What is grace? What's grace? We use that word. We throw that around in church quite often. We sing about it. We thank God for it. But what is grace? Grace, very simply, is God's undeserved and unearned favor upon us. That's what it is. Undeserved and unearned favor. His giving of good things to us. It is his loving initiative in reaching out to us. His loving initiative in redeeming us, covering our sin. It's God extending himself to us. That's grace. And listen, apart from grace... There would be no worship. It wouldn't happen. It wouldn't be possible. Worship is rooted in grace. And although these people are at this moment in history receiving God's law, this passage found here in the book of the covenant is permeated by grace. We see grace in the appointing of a mediator. The people said, this is too much for us to handle. God, don't speak to us anymore. Moses, will you go do this for us? And God accepts that arrangement. He says, yes, a mediator is a good idea. I will accommodate myself to a fearful people by speaking to them through a mediator. That is grace. We see grace in the imagery of the altars. In building an altar out of earth or out of stone, we see God's provision for a needy people. That God provides the material for worship. You see, worship doesn't depend on us building something to reach God. Worship is about us receiving what God provides and then just responding to him. I think we see grace even in the imagery of the altars. There's definitely grace in the sacrifices. He makes mention in verse 24 of burnt offerings and peace offerings, two different types of offerings. These two offerings provided forgiveness and fellowship for a sinful people. The burnt offering provided atonement. A burnt offering was to be killed and to be completely burned on the altar. All of it was devoted to God. And the, the burnt offering was intended to provide atonement for sin. You see, God has just given them the Ten Commandments. He's giving them his law in the book of the covenant. And God knows that they won't be able to obey the law. God knows that there will be violations. God knows that their hearts are sinful and their lives will be marked by sin. And the very first thing God provides for them right here is here's how you can worship me. Here's how you can continue to enjoy relationship with me. There's sacrifices for sin. We see grace in the provision of the burnt offering, which is atonement for sin. 
But there's also a peace offering. The peace offering was different than the burnt offering. The peace offering, the, the fat, the, the best part of the animal was to be placed on the altar and offered to God. That was God's portion. And then the rest of the animal was to be prepared and eaten by the worshipers. It's a shared meal. The, the word here for peace offering is shalom. This fellowship, this harmony. And, and, and it symbolizes that there, because atonement has been made by the burnt offering, there is now fellowship and harmony and peace between the two parties. And this is represented by the peace offering. These instructions indicate God's grace to his people. He knows they will sin, but he provides a solution so that their sin can be atoned for, so that he can have peace with them, so that they can share in fellowship together in covenant relationship. This is grace. Their worship is rooted in this grace. But we also see grace in God's promise of coming to them and blessing them wherever they are. We see this again in verse 24. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. Think about that. We read through that quickly, but think about that. These people who feel vulnerable, they've just come out of Egypt. They're going into an unknown land and they don't know what lies ahead of them. God says, in every place where I cause my name to be remembered, which I think refers to these altars being built, remembering his name, worshiping him. In every place, wherever you go, I will come to you and bless you. God is providing in his grace confidence for a weak people. God indicates he's not going to just stay there at Sinai. God's not saying, hey, if you ever need me, you know where to find me. I'll be on the mountain. He says, no, wherever you go, in every place where you worship me this way, I will come to you and I will bless you. This is the confidence they would need as they went into the wilderness and later entered the promised land. And it assured them that their worship would be accepted no matter where they were. They didn't have to go to Mount Sinai to make sacrifices. And this is grace, all of it. Consider God's grace to us. Think about this in terms of our own worship of God and how our worship too is rooted in grace. We've not been told to build an altar. We've not been told to provide a sacrifice, sheep or oxen, because God has actually done both. He's done both. The altar God has provided us is a wooden cross. It's not impressive. There's no ornate artistry. It is crude, and it's disposable. It was later discarded when it was no longer needed. The sacrifice that atones for our sin, the atonement of Jesus, the one who suffers in our place, this is not our doing. This is not something we have brought to the table and offered to God so that we could be made right with him. This is something that God has provided for us. And we simply come with open hands to receive what he has given. We are lawbreakers. By our sin, we have alienated ourselves from God. In our natural state, our natural condition as sinners, there is hostility, not peace, between sinful man and the thrice holy God. But this God has provided atonement. And because atonement has been made, now Jesus says, I will come to you and be with you. I will place my spirit in you. 
wherever you are, wherever we are, we know and experience the presence of our God and we can worship him. And he receives and accepts our worship because of what Christ has done on the cross. Friends, our worship is to be rooted in grace. Their worship centered around an altar. And our worship centers around a cross. Redeemed people will worship by the book. Our worship is to be a response to God's revelation. It's to be regulated by his law. And all worship is to be rooted in his grace. If you've experienced that grace, if you've received God's revelation of himself by his spirit and in his word and in your own experience in your life, and if you know through faithful teaching and through reading of scripture what it is that God wants you to do, then let's respond to that rightly. Let's see these principles applied in our own lives, in our homes, and in our churches. Let's worship him in the way that he desires. And friend, if perhaps you today are not in a position to worship God because there is no peace, because your sin stands between you and God, then what God requires of you is not that you provide something to make it right. What God requires of you is not that you somehow do better next time in keeping his law. What God requires is atonement. And he's provided that through his son, Jesus. So your worship starts today by simply coming and receiving with empty hands God's provision of forgiveness so that then you can come to the table and share with us in the fellowship meal, celebrating the fact that sinners can be made right with the holy God. And if you do know this God, let's worship him. Let's worship him today. Would you bow and pray with me? Father, we are so thankful for your word And though it can be difficult for us at times to read instructions that sound foreign to our ears because they were for a different people in a different time, in a different circumstance, Lord, I'm thankful that there are um, eternal truths that are there for us. Lord, as we read this book of the covenant, I pray that it would shape our response to you, that it would cause us to read carefully through the rest of scripture, looking to see how it is that you want us to worship you. I pray that we would be obedient to you, that we would offer you a worship that is pleasing to you, and that our worship would always be rooted in grace. We thank you, God, for your incredible, undeserved, unmerited, gracious favor to sinners like us. We come only bearing sin, and you've not required us to ascend to where you are. Worship is not accomplished by somehow climbing into heaven to be where you are. Rather, you came down to us. You told those people that you would come to them and bless them, and you have done that for us. You literally took on flesh, and you came here to bless us with eternal life. God, we thank you for your goodness and grace, for coming to us, reaching to us, providing a sacrifice so that we can know you, so that we can be your people and you can be our God. And we ask, God, that as we seek to worship you faithfully, we ask that you would be pleased, that you would be honored, that you would receive all the glory that you deserve. Amen.